everyone. Welcome to Grand Rounds. Uh, it's a uh, very important Grand Rounds today, and the, the title will you know, tells it all, COVID-19 preparing for the mental health pandemic. And I call it the other pandemic, which is going to have long-lasting effects beyond COVID-19. And we need to understand how it affects our children, how it affects us. And, and we have a distinguished panel today that will address this issue. And I think you will learn a lot. Uh, you know, before we, I pass it on to Dr. Glenn Folk, who will introduce uh, our panelists, uh, it is important to remember that uh, yesterday we celebrated Martin Luther King's uh, birthday, and, and uh, I have a quote from him that I think will be very relevant to the issues that it will be discussed here today. And it is important for all of us to, to pay attention, to do what is right, and to learn, and not remain silent observers of the mental health crisis. Again, these quotes can be used in, in multiple ways, uh, but I think this one is relevant for what we need to do today. Never, never be afraid to do what is right, especially if the well-being of a person or animal is at stake. Society's punishments are small compared to the wound we inflict on our soul when we look the other way. Uh, so I think that's very important. And I think we need to pay very close attention to the mental health pandemic that we're dealing with right now. Um, certainly our hospital has been uh, affected greatly uh, by the mental health of our children and how it affects us as professionals, our team members, the work that they do every day. I think we will learn a lot today. Uh, again, I, uh, I hope all of you are staying safe. Uh, we, this pandemic is approaching, uh, by the end of the day, 400,000 of our fellow citizens would have died from COVID-19, which is, is just really astonishing. Uh, so by inauguration day tomorrow, they will surpass that number, uh, which no, no one ever thought would be, the, would be possible. So let's learn about this. Let's take care of each other. And I'm going to pass it on to a champion for mental health uh, throughout his life, throughout his career in a very personal way. And we're just very lucky to have him with us, uh, Dr. Glenn Folk, uh, who's an internist by training, but a pediatrician been heart. And, and we've had him for now a number of years, uh, leading our practice, leading our hospital in so many ways. And behavioral health, mental health is something that he champions every single day. Glenn, uh, I'm proud to have you come up here and thank you for your immense service to Connecticut Children's and the kids here in Connecticut that we serve. It's really an honor to have you, Glenn. Uh, thank you, Juan, and thank you, everyone, for gathering. I know that you are um, facing many challenges in the middle of this pandemic, and your attention and time and passion to come here, learn more about the ways that we can care for children um, continues to inspire me and, and be another of the many reasons I'm very fortunate and happy to be here at Connecticut Children's. So um, today, our speakers have asked me not to go through the very long and impressive um, CVs that bring them here. We have a great panel um, talking to us um, and with us and giving us a chance to uh, have discussion today about preparing for the mental health pandemic that will come as a result of everything that children have experienced over the last 10 months. Uh, Dr. Jennifer Downs, Dr. Melissa Santos, and Howard Savronsky will be sharing their insights, trends, thoughts, and evidence-based insights with you shortly. But before they do, they ask that I uh, spend just a moment to remind us of the importance of our commitment to caring for the whole child at Connecticut Children's. And with that, I'd like to move to the next slide. Next one, one more. And uh, there we go. 
So as we approach this uh, discussion today, my uh, simple request as a leader, as a fellow physician, um, as a parent, as a caregiver, and a family member of someone who has lived with profound mental illness for nearly 49 years now, is that we understand that these children are our children. Um, they can be our uh, grandchildren, our siblings' children, they're the kids down the block, but they are ours and we are committed to making a difference in their lives. And I know that's hard in the middle of a pandemic and even more difficult when we encounter some of the most severely ill children across Connecticut and the region when their medical uh, needs and behavioral health needs or some combination of those two bring them uh, to our organization. So as you uh, think about uh, the discussion we're about to have in preparing for the coming pandemic of mental health and behavioral health needs of children. Please um, approach this work with the compassion and empathy of knowing that these are pediatric illnesses that we have to be part of the solution for and that these children are suffering and their families are suffering and we have an opportunity to make a difference in the lives of these kids and their parents who are struggling to understand worlds that largely don't make sense anymore. That was certainly the experience of my family when my brother became severely ill at age 15 and many times through his journey. And I hope you'll keep that top of mind as we provide new information and insights about some of the experiences you're having now and the ways we're working to have a well-prepared, supported group of clinicians who are ready to take on the needs of these kids. So with that, let me hand things over to Dr. Melissa Santos, who will be the first of the three speakers this morning as we uh, take on this topic of preparing for the mental health pandemic. Uh, Melissa? Thank you, Dr. Folk, and good morning, everyone. So I'm excited to be here alongside uh, Dr. Folk and Dr. Downs and Howard to talk a little bit about uh, preparing for the mental health pandemic. So we have three kind of objectives for today. The first is to report on the current mental health trends that we're seeing in COVID-19. And then I'm gonna turn it over to Dr. Downs, who's gonna talk to you about the use of assess assessment strategies that you can start using today in your clinical practice. And then we'll turn this over to Howard, who's gonna talk a little bit about what Connecticut Children's is doing um, for this mental health impact during COVID. Um, the title um, that we have, which is um, preparing for the mental health impact is a little misleading because we know that you know if you're here at the hospital on the ambulatory side or in your practices, we're in the midst of the pandemic for, of mental health right now. And so we're trying to get through our content a little bit quickly so that we can spend time at the end to make sure that you have your questions answered and that you leave this grand rounds with the questions that you have in your practice answered or that you know where to go for the resources that you need. We are also as speakers going to be very mindful of and we encourage you as well to use our person first language. Um, so we know, um, and I think Dr. Folk spoke to this a little bit, that there is a stigma attached to behavioral health, mental health, um, psychiatric disorders, whatever term it is that you want to use. And we want to be careful and mindful that what we're remembering is that we're working with children, we're working with adolescents, we're working with families, and that we're not using their diagnosis as an adjective to describe them. So we're not working with anorexics, we're not working with psych patients, we're not working with that thing or, the, or that other thing. We're working with a child, an adolescent, a family who has strengths and weaknesses like you all do, like we all do in this room, and that we remember that kind of along the way. 
So let's talk a little bit about the mental health trends that we see. So what did we see pre-COVID? So what do we know pre-pandemic about what mental health is like for children and adolescents? So we know that by the time um, children are between the ages of two to eight, one in six children in the US have a diagnosed mental, behavioral, or developmental disorder one to six, and as we start to increase age, then we start to see rates of one to five or one to four along the way. The other thing that we know is that we see a shift in what gets diagnosed by age. So in younger kids, we tend to see more what are labeled behavior disorders, oppositional defiant disorder or something like that. And as kids start to increase in age, what we start to see is more diagnoses of depression and anxiety come with it. The other thing that we know is that there's significant overlap between our mental health disorders. So if you have a child who's presenting to you that their primary diagnosis or their primary symptoms tend to be depression that they're presenting, chances are pretty good that they also have an anxiety disorder with that as well, and perhaps have some behavioral challenges with it as well. If they have anxiety, they likely have other conditions as well. So it's important to understand that these things overlap a whole lot and that we're working with complex issues along the way. Some just things to keep in mind is that in younger age groups, we know that boys tend to have higher rates of being diagnosed, but perhaps what's most significant, what I think could probably be an entire grand rounds onto itself, is that 22% of children living in poverty have a diagnosed mental health concern. And what's most concerning about that is that they are also the population that is least likely to be able to access mental health care. And Howard will talk a little bit at the end about some of the ways that we're hoping to overcome that, but it's significant. We can have a whole conversation about ACEs and social determinants of health, um, but this is a significant population at need. We also know that there's a significant relationship between mental health and physical health, and that these two things can't be separated along the way. So if you come to my clinic at the obesity program, 55% of kids that come to our pediatric obesity program have clinically significant levels of depression upon entry into our program. And for the most part, we are their first time that they've seen a psychologist for that depression. Dating back to my days working in HIV, we know that kids that have been affected or infected by HIV at birth, by the time they hit adolescence, up to 61% will have a diagnosed mental health condition. 36% of kids that will have symptoms of depression following a traumatic brain injury. We know that there's significant relationships between sleep apnea, depression, anxiety, obesity, self-esteem. And we know adherence to medical treatments are often reported at less than 50%. So we know that this is all sort of mixed up and together. And perhaps what's most significant is that we know that suicide is the second leading cause of death for children starting at the age of 10. And it's such a startling statistic that I feel the need to say it again. Suicide is the second leading cause of death for kids starting at the age of 10. And what's also becomes concerning with that is that nearly one in eight kids starting at the age of six have thoughts of suicide. So thinking about a six-year-old having thoughts of suicide, and this is pre-pandemic. And we know that COVID isn't helping at all. So this is data from the CDC where we compare a uh, number of ED visits for mental health between April to October of 2019 to April to October of 2020. What we see is that for kids between the ages of five to 11, the number of visits have increased almost 25%. And for adolescents between the ages of 12 to 17, the number of visits have increased almost 31%. As many of you may know, about a year and a half ago, our, our emergency room rolled out suicide screening where almost every child starting at age 10 is screened for suicide. What you are looking there, and a thank you to our ED staff and Deb Burns for this uh, data, is the past year and the percent of patients in the ED that were screening positive on uh, the initial screening for suicide. Um, Dr. Downs will talk a little bit more about this measure in her talk, but what you can see is with the start of the pandemic, the trend going up, 
uh, it going down a little bit in the summertime and that spike going back up in terms of back to school. And the important thing to know about these percent of patients that are screening positive and needing further evaluation for suicide evaluation is that these are not all behavioral health kids. So these aren't kids that are presenting to the emergency room uh, for a behavioral health concern. The orange line shows that many of these are kids coming in for medical concerns. So kids that are coming in for a sprained ankle or a broken arm or something like that are screening positive. In November, almost 10% of kids present to the emergency room for a medical condition required further screening for suicide and it is young. The number of kids that the ED is screening positive for suicide who have attempted suicide by the age of 10 is startling to see. And throughout this, we have to remember our parents. We have to remember ourselves as grownups, but also the parents that we serve as well. This is data from the CDC, uh, from the census. This is the Household Pulse Survey. Many of you may have received an email to participate in this, but they will track a variety of outcomes and ask people to report on many things every week, including symptoms of anxiety or depression. Last summer in Connecticut, most adults were reporting symptoms of 10% uh, of Connecticut adults were reporting uh, symptoms of anxiety or depression. That's the yellow line at the bottom. The blue line was this past summer. Up to 40% of Connecticut adults were reporting symptoms of anxiety or depression since the pandemic has occurred. And what you can see is it's rather interesting when you overlap it to things that occurred in the state during this time. So you saw a dip starting to go down when phase one started to reopen. I think people had a lot of high expectations for what that meant. You didn't see that dip down once phase two started. And now with back to school, you've seen that spike sort of start to go up as well. So I think as Dr. Salazar said, we have to be careful with ourselves and our own mood and be careful about our parents and be mindful of that with the parents that we're serving as well. <clears throat> and so what are families saying? So this is data from a COVID impact survey um, that we administered in our clinic, um, in our obesity clinic. And so this is some of the things that parents said when we were asked, just tell us a little bit about what COVID has done for your family. My child's been depressed due to COVID-19 and not being able to see friends and go places. Their father's stuck in another country and can't travel to the US to see them. The pandemic has made for a lot of stress, anxiety, and sadness. I'm scared that I may bring the virus home to my kids. I stress over my family's safety at all times. My son thinks there's no getting better from this and that he's gonna die. And so these are the things that our families are sort of carrying with them in terms of the impact of COVID in their everyday life. And as we think about next steps and we think about where do we go from here, it's sort of concerning because even if Dr. Salazar at two o'clock during town hall came up here and said, COVID's over, we're done with it. Everybody's good. We're not gonna get sick from it, all better. He'd be very happy to do that. We'd all be happy. He would start hugging people. We'd all burn our masks on the front lawn. Like we would all be very happy. But the mental health impact from what we know from other tragedies that have occurred in the United States indicates that this mental health pandemic is gonna last so much longer. From what we know about people that were impacted by Columbine, for people that were impacted, children that were impacted over 9-11 now have higher rates of mental health disorder than the general population. Kids that went through Sandy Hook, um, kids that went through Hurricane Sandy, kids that have been through other school shootings, people that have been involved in other kinds of tragedies. Years later, the mental health impact is still there. And as I turn this over to Dr. Downs to talk about assessment, it's why assessment is gonna be so critical because we're gonna be in this for a while and really needing to assess what's going on with these kids. And so for that, I'm gonna turn this over to Dr. Downs. Thank you for your time this morning. Thank you very much, Melissa. I appreciate that. Um, so I'm gonna talk a little bit about assessment strategies and how we can help these kids. So approaching mental health concerns. 
you're invited. Everyone can do this, and I do encourage everyone to do this. Um, it's very simple. You need a psychiatric review of systems and a safety check. You do it with the parents in the room. You do it without the parents in the room. Every visit, and just start asking. So the first question is, what do I need to ask? This is my suggestions for a psychiatric review of systems. You cover on mood, anxiety, sleep, diet, energy, their functioning, concentration, and then also check on to safety. So any self-harm, any thoughts of harming others, any um, legal concerns or DCF involvement, any substance use, any abuse. There's a lot of screeners out there that can help us with this, make it a little bit easier so you don't even have to think about necessarily everything you need to ask. One of the most common ones that I would definitely encourage you looking into is the pediatric symptom checklist. And this is just a screenshot of the parent version and the youth version. Um, there's a 17-point checklist. There's also an expanded 35-point checklist. It's freely available. If you just Google pediatric symptom checklist, you'll find it within the first couple of hits. It comes in multiple languages. It's been validated time and time again. And it's also built into a lot of different EMRs. So you can ask parents to actually fill it out ahead of time. Um, and it'll be ready and waiting for you when kids show up to your office. The scoring is very simple. You just add the points. So it, there's three columns that they'll ask about, never, sometimes, or often for a variety of symptoms and concerns. You add that up for the total score, anything greater than 15 is positive. And then there's also subscales for internalizing behaviors, so things that might be indicating anxiety, externalizing behaviors, things that might be um, seen as behavioral problems, acting out, and attention problems, things that might be indicative of ADHD. I also want to direct you to this website, Mass General. Um, they have a great website with lots of details, kind of a toolkit of how you might use this and some free forms that you can access in all the languages in which it's published. In terms of screening for suicide, which is another really important thing and something that I would encourage you to do independently even of the um, pediatric symptom checklist or your psychiatric review of systems, um, I, I would suggest using the ask suicide screening questions. This is what we're using at Connecticut Children's. This is what is being used actually very widely across the nation right now. It's what's being promoted by um, the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. And as you can see, it's very simple. This is it, just these five questions. Um, in the past few weeks, have you wished you were dead? Have you felt that you or your family would be better off if you were dead? Have you been having thoughts about killing yourself? Have you ever tried to kill yourself? Mm -hmm. And then you pause, and if they answered any of those as yes, you would ask the fifth question, are you having thoughts of killing yourself right now? And this can be used in children as young as 10 years old um, per the validated studies. I've personally administered it to kids as young as seven. If they can understand the concept of death, they can answer these questions. And as Dr. Santos told us, kids as young as six years old start to have suicide thoughts. So it is very important to ask every kid about these questions. When it comes time to score, again, very simple to score this. If they answer no to all the questions one through four, your screening is complete. You're done. That's 20 seconds. If they answer yes to any of the questions one through four or they refuse to answer, you know, you're worried that maybe they're concealing something from you, then that would be considered a positive screen. You'll ask the fifth question to determine the acuity. Is this um, an acute positive? They're having those thoughts right now and you might need to consider rushing them to an emergency department or doing further investigation or no, is this a non-acute positive and you have some time to really talk and figure things out before you take next steps? Um, 
when you do have positive ASQs or when you do uncover other safety concerns, you're gonna to wanna to do a safety assessment. This includes praising the patient for sharing about the difficult topic, clarifying their responses to the suicide screener, asking more questions, performing that psychiatric symptom checklist, asking about supports and safety, debriefing and creating a plan of care. I do wanna highlight the difference between ideation and attempts because I think the ideation is something that we all need to understand and know when to be worried and when we can take that deep breath and, and just pause and explore more. So suicidal ideation is common. It does not indicate a high risk for suicide alone. Attempts are rare. They're serious events. They do require a psychiatric evaluation. Um, and when you're considering this, the method of attempt is less important than the patient's concept of what would happen after the attempt. So we all know the story of the kid who took a handful of Tylenol thinking it was a safe medication because mom gives it to me all the time and wind up with uh, liver failure. We've also all heard this story of the child who, you know, maybe took three melatonin and everyone thought that wasn't a big deal, but they were actually in very serious psychiatric pain and really had been hoping that that was going to kill them and thought that that was going to make them die. So I think it's really important to remember that, that the method of attempt is not nearly as important as what the child is feeling at the time that they attempt and what their intent is. Suicide does come on a spectrum, so I just show you this to help you visualize how I think of the spectrum of suicide risk. You know, no suicidal ideations are green light, suicidal intent would be our red light. And again, to just remind us of the mental status examination and the components. In green here, these are things you can get from the doorway. Um, yellow are things you can get from a conversation, just, you know, general small talk. The purple you can get with a observing the child and, and their responses to you. And then the blue is the stuff where you really have to maybe change out of your pediatric mindset and start thinking a little bit more about your mental health mindset to ask those questions. But if you can see most of this, you're doing with every visit every time anyway. And a lot of it is just watching the kids. So you might be thinking, what else would I look for an exam besides the mental status exam? Um, two big areas to consider are neurologic abnormalities and also skin findings. Those are really important parts of my overall exam when I'm examining kids. You know, neurologic abnormalities can be indicative of not only a neurologic injury or um, something like that, but also in substance intoxication and skin findings. You might find, again, intoxication. You might find signs of eating disorders. You might find signs of self-injury. This is a list of emergencies not to be missed when you're assessing children. So suicidal ideation, self-injurious behaviors, agitation, homicidal ideation, psychosis, and then the more rare things we see in psychiatry, um, neuroleptic malignant syndrome, serotonin syndrome, catatonia, dystonic reactions. Important to familiarize yourself with this, especially that first four, just to make sure that those are not missed in your office and evaluations. Once you do evaluate a child, you wanna make sure that you're prepared for the what to do next. So safety planning and discharge counseling. Um, I encourage this five point safety planning and I have some examples in the blue boxes of some language you can use, but it covers means restriction, support and supervision, follow-up care, emergency access and discussion of triggers and coping. 
if you're hitting on all of these different points in your safety planning, then you can feel pretty confident that your kids are going to be able to go home and maintain safety until the next visit. I also do encourage a follow-up phone call in one to two days um, just to check in. Has the patient engaged with the follow-up resources that you recommended? Are they successfully navigating their crisis? There's a lot of data out there that shows that follow-up calls texts, postcards, even up to five years later, help to decrease suicidality and suicide attempts. So final steps, um, disposition and resources, you know, the big stop sign, ED evaluation or 911 call is always appropriate for a mental health emergency if you find that you're in that situation. Other things that families can access urgently themselves, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, the Crisis Text Line, and here in Connecticut, the Emergency Crisis Intervention, by calling 211, you can get a mobile assessment. Some non-urgent resources, Connecticut Children's um, has a Center for Care Coordination that can help connect patients to services, and also there's a behavioral health kit on the website with lots of nice resources. And for professionals, um, access mental health. I just want to remind you about that. You can speak directly with a child and adolescent psychiatrist. It's open Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, um, and there's different phone numbers depending where in the state you might be located. And so with that, I'm going to turn it over to Howard to talk about what is Connecticut Children's doing. Thank you. Good morning. I just want to check if my video is up. Yes, you're, you're good. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. So at Connecticut Children's, we are clearly driven by our values and are committed to caring for the whole child and the family. Next slide, please. We've clearly seen a impact that COVID has had on the behavioral health, the emotional needs of kids and families. Um, there is no question that over the past several months, while the volume may not have been as much as pre-COVID, the acuity level of children coming into our emergency room and seeking services has increased, partly due to the emotional trauma that, and experience that they've had during the pandemic but also the loss of services and access to services that they've experienced during the pandemic due to the uh, closure and the limits set by providers in our community. We recognize at Connecticut Children's that kids coming to us in crisis um, are not homogeneous, that crises come in all different forms. And therefore we've established a continuum of care to address the crisis that presents in our emergency room and throughout our hospital. In our emergency room, um, we've adopted a rapid access to acuity process where we try to screen and see kids as quickly as possible to determine their level of acuity and their need. And as um, Melissa had stated earlier, we have instituted a universal suicide screening form 
to not only address the kids presenting with behavioral health problems, but also children coming in with medical needs, recognizing that as our commitment is to deal with the whole child and understanding that emotional needs cannot be separated out from their physical illness. We provide dispositional assessment to determine the level of care the child requires. For those with higher levels of care, they are seen and, and continue to remain under observation in our zone C, which is a dedicated safe environment within our emergency room that is staffed by highly trained behavioral health specialists that can provide adequate um, care, observation, treatment, and dispositional planning. For those children who are less acute, um, we have a rapid discharge process in place where behavioral health care coordinators and social workers work with our medical team to rapidly assess triage and discharge children from the emergency room. We've, we've um, looked at our data over many years and currently it's really not that much different, but a large number of kids coming to the emergency room do not require uh, extensive emergency room care, but can be seen rapidly assessed and discharged back home, back to the community to be seen and followed by providers there. But we also know that there are many children who require care in the community, but who are not connected to community providers. And the weight oftentimes can result in further decompensation. So about two years ago, um, Connecticut Children's established the Transition Clinic, which provides a bridge between the emergency room and community-based care. We provide um, uh, at the hospital rapid assessment, therapeutic support by social workers, um, a treatment team that consists of child psychiatrists, clinical social workers, and care coordinators, where we can provide interim care while a child is waiting for an appointment for in long-term care in the community. We've recognized that a large number of children continue to return to the emergency room as recidivists over the years after their first visit. And we suspect that a large part of that reason is that they fail to connect with appropriate care providers in the community. So the transition clinic is a very unique service that's unique to our state where we have provided an, uh, an opportunity for kids to be safely maintained and protected while they're waiting for care at a longer term uh, facility. Next slide, please. We are also in the process of developing a brand new um, strategy, which is to create a, an urgent care, behavioral health urgent care model that will begin to provide the community uh, providers like yourselves and schools an option to sending children to the emergency room. We understand that a large number of kids who are sent to the emergency room do not really require that level of care. But in the absence of any other option, they are oftentimes by schools placed in an ambulance and just sent to the ED for a second opinion or a quick look-see. We believe that we can provide better care at a reduced trauma to the family and children at a reduced cost by creating an opportunity for kids and families to access an immediate clinical assessment and referral as a way of avoiding emergency room care. 
So we've just hired a clinical social worker who will be working out of our transition clinic, who providing, will be providing initial clinical and dispositional assessment in an effort to divert children from the emergency room. We are initially going to be targeting our primary care providers and local schools as a referral source so that we can begin to try and keep children from the emergency room and keep them linked to appropriate levels of care. Next slide, please. We also know from national data that only 20% of children who need mental health services receive care from specialized mental health care providers. We know there's been a, for many years a national shortage of, of um, board certified child and adolescent psychiatrists. And we also know that pediatricians are the single largest provider of behavioral health care and medication for children. So recognizing that we've made a commitment to begin to help support and expand the workforce that's available for to children and families who are seeking mental health care. And recognizing that our pediatric providers are on the front lines, we are beginning on Thursday evening to uh, offer a pediatric behavioral health learning community to help support and increase the capacity, competency, and confidence of our local pediatric providers. This will be a nine uh, session um, training program that will be provided by a, an expert team that we've hired from Boston Children's who have already developed and successfully delivered this curriculum to pediatric providers throughout Massachusetts and Los Angeles. Um, this training and consultation will be offered with the goal of supporting and enhancing the competencies of primary care providers and their staff so that they could better identify, screen, and treat low to moderate level mental health concerns amongst their patients. We are also proud to um, inform you that over the past four years, Connecticut Children's in cooperation and collaboration with the village, a local a community mental health provider, have developed an integrated care model that is now operational in two of our primary care practices. And we've successfully demonstrated the effectiveness of providing integrated uh, behavioral health and medical care in a collaborative holistic approach to children and adolescents and their families. Next slide, please. We've also, as a medical facility that is committed to the full health and care of our children, recognize that a large number of our children who are seeking medical care at Connecticut Children's also have comorbid coexisting medical, med mental health or behavioral health issues. And we are able to very proudly offer a expert team of, of mental health providers staffed by psychiatry, uh, pediatric psychology and clinical social work and care coordination that work as part of our consultation liaison team, working directly with the medical providers, nursing staff uh, and support teams to help diagnose, assess, manage and provide dispositional planning for all of the patients at Connecticut Children's who may also have a comorbid psychiatric behavioral health, med mental health condition along with their medical concerns. And we also, as um, uh, Dr. Santos pointed out, 
recognize the need for mental health support in all of our ambulatory medical um, clinics. And therefore, we have a long history of providing an incredible uh, team of highly trained, specialized pediatric psychologists and social workers who are embedded in most of our ambulatory medical clinics that provide a full range of mental health services uh, addressing the needs of those children and their families. We provide special specialty care um, also in our division of adolescent medicine for those children who are experiencing eating uh, disordered. And in the division of behavioral and developmental pediatrics, we're also working in providing services to children on the autism spectrum. Next slide, please. So as I said earlier, Connecticut Children is committed to caring for the whole family, the whole child and the family. Our investments are working to normalize behavioral health as a non-negotiable part of primary and specialty care. Our investments are building new capacity, new workforce, and new programs, um, which could be illustrated by our quick adoption of telepsychiatry and telemedicine uh, that allowed us to continue providing excellent care to our patients during this pandemic when they were not able to directly come and access care at our facility, we've been able to maintain and provide the necessary mental health supports to children and their families through our transition clinic, uh, on the floors and in our emergency room. And with that, I will turn it back to our, um, to Dr. Santos or Dr. Salazar, but thank you very much. Thank you, uh, uh, Howard, uh, Jennifer, and Melissa for uh, a great presentation. You can see the strength of, of our program and the many ways that it's changing and evolving uh, to serve the children and to help all of you as pediatricians. So I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Downs and Dr. Santos to be closer to the microphone there, as long as you stay within six feet. And then uh, I and, and Glenn, just be on the, on the queue as well. So uh, this is a question that I predicted would come if, uh, so our pediatricians are very busy uh, and uh, our, our advanced practitioners are very busy and they may see 90 patients in a day, depending on the practice. Uh, and they may have five or 10 minutes per kid. The question is if, if somebody gets a positive score on the screen, who do they refer to? What would be the next step? So, so maybe uh, Dr. Downs, you would, if you can address that first. So I definitely can speak to that. Um, these, these screens can be done quickly. Like I said, you can do them in advance even. Um, and the conversation can also be done quickly. I've worked many times in integrated care settings where I'm embedded in a pediatrics office or embedded in a family medicine office. And I know from experience of working in those settings, as well as from my own experience um, in triple board training, where I was trained in pediatrics, in addition to child psychiatry, that we can do this in 15 minutes. We can get this completed during a visit. Um, and it is important we ask, you know, and for the rare kids where it does derail your day a little bit, it's worth it. This is, this is important. This is something that we all should do. Um, we do have next steps available. As you heard from Howard, there's lots of psychology embedded within some of our subspecialty clinics at Connecticut Children's. We have the emergency department for emergencies. We have community mental health centers such as the villages in the community. Um, you have access mental health that you can call to help give you advice, to help connect you to resources. You have the care coordination line at Connecticut Children's. Um, 
I think there's there's a lot out there. There's also a great website called Psychology Today, which is a, a free access for patients and families that you can search different mental health care providers in your area by insurance. Um, so I think it's really just about starting the conversation and then the what's next will come. because There's definitely options out there. So maybe Dr. Santos, if you can comment, uh, you know, just uh, again, for pediatricians, uh, one, two, three. Okay, it's Monday. This is my 15th patient, positive screen, very concerned. Uh, how do we avoid 911, go to the emergency department and actually access some of the services that you are uh, providing now? Yeah, I struggle a little bit with this question because I always times think like, you wouldn't ask this question about doing like if you screen positive for diabetes or things like that. You know, it, this is part of the care of the whole child is as well, their mental health as well as their medical health and things like that. I do think there are ways for pediatricians offices to be proactive. Of course, Michael reaction is you should get a psychologist for your practice. Um, but I think there are ways that you could be proactive in the education and putting things in place to help your children even prior to those screenings, either by getting somebody in your office by connecting them to resources later on. Um, if they are connected here at Connecticut Children's to an ambulatory setting. We can always connect them to a mental health provider here. But I do think there's some work that you can do on the upfront to educate a little bit sooner, to provide that information sooner, and just to make those conversations normal within your practice with your patients. And, and Howard, perhaps, uh, can you comment? Uh, you mentioned there's a new service that will be provided uh, through Connecticut Children's. How, uh, how can the pediatricians access that? Yeah, the service is about to be rolled out, and I would um, ask you just to um, give us a little bit more time but there will be a number that will be published once this is set up, which will be um, available to you to exactly do this kind of consultation. And it's our hope that um, once we have this person uh, in place, those kinds of questions would be ideal for uh, the urgent care uh, transition clinic uh, to be able to help you figure out what is the next step, whether that child is uh, acute enough we're requiring emergency care, whether you should call two-on-one to access our statewide emergency mobile service, or can we provide a quick consult on the phone, direct you to a local provider, or make a, an appointment at our transition clinic where you can be seen right away by a psychiatrist and social worker until we can find a more um, long-term solution to the child's presentation. And we'll make sure we inform everyone through this, you know, yes. various means to, so you have access to that number. Uh, Dr. Santos, many of our subspecialty clinics still don't have access to pediatric psychologists. Do you have a specific plan and timeline to address this? <laughs> Can I punt this to Dr. Folk? No. <laughs> 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 yes, but it takes his help. <laughs> So I love that question um, because I understand the need and, and passion behind it. And for the people, um, individuals who shared those two earlier questions about what, what do I do if I have a positive screen today or this afternoon, please reach out to me and Howard uh, following the grand round so that if you're really struggling and, and wouldn't know where to begin that conversation. And I hear that as an authentic state of reality right now. I don't want that to be uh, part of your future. So reach out to Howard, to me, and we'll triage so that when that situation does happen, you have a point of entry that you can know and trust and we can work uh, to support you. So earlier this uh, uh, weekend, actually, I had a chance to review this state of behavioral health integration. As Howard mentioned, we're bringing it to the 28 practices of our 
um, Connecticut Children's Care Network so that we'll be able to start working upstream. And our goal is that each of those practices over the next two years will choose to have integrated behavioral health. We have a similar goal across Connecticut Children's that we will ramp up our efforts to build on the success of the last 24 months to expand access to integrated behavioral health within uh, specialty programs. That's not as simple as just plunking a behavioral health clinician, whether that person is a highly skilled psychologist or a clinical social worker in your practice. What the literature and from work that I led previously when I was in Boston says is that those programs don't work unless we provide simultaneous training and support for clinicians to know how to connect. So the same time we're ramping up to provide behavioral health integration across the care network, we're continuing to work systematically to identify the population specific needs of specialty programs and to uh, create a path that's fiscally sustainable and clinically successful for, for you to move forward. So if you're uh, asking this question from a division and you feel that you have critical mass and a willingness to work with us to make those investments, we'll work with you to make this a reality. It won't be instantaneous, but over the last 24 months, we've brought integrated behavioral health to eight clinical programs that didn't have it previously. And we're, we're committed to working on this um, uh, because my ultimate goal, and I know this is one that our CEO, Jim Schmerling and the whole executive management team shares is, we're committed to caring for the whole child and we don't want there to be any disconnects in any of our programs between our ability to care for the whole child. So. Once again, um, please contact me so I can uh, provide a more specific uh, uh, reply to you for the, that, that very uh, fair question, but we are uh, continuing to work to make certain we understand the needs within programs, that we partner with clinical uh, leaders and clinicians to create a path forward, and that we do it in a way that will be successful and sustainable. So I look forward to getting that email and, and launching that work. Glenn, stay, stay up there for a second. So the, and this is for you and Howard, are the insurance companies keeping pace with the evolution of the care you're describing? Yeah, that's a great question. The answer is yes and no. So I'll start with the yes, because I like being pragmatic and positive. So many insurance companies now understand in ways that may be self-serving or may be based on uh, other factors that um, they are spending enormous amounts of money on kids with behavioral health needs and what they consider to be high cost, um, lower value settings, ERs, inpatient behavioral health units and other settings. We also know from, from work that I did uh, in a past life that children with behavioral health needs um, have between 500 and 700% higher healthcare costs. So some uh, uh, insurance companies seeing this data have actually started to uh, develop more progressive approaches to access to behavioral health care. They have created um, payment for CPT codes that allows for care to happen in integrated medical settings. They've gotten rid of rules that used to prevent people from seeing a medical a clinician and a behavioral health clinician on the same day. And a small number of them are even uh, providing payment for care coordination. I'm saying that uh, frankly, because not all insurance companies have taken that approach. And one of the things that Jim Schmerling, our CEO has been working to advocate is that children no longer require prior authorizations to access behavioral health care. We think that's an important part of the Mental Health Parity Act of 2008 and the Affordable Care Act of 2009. And the reality is there's still requirements for many uh, prior authorizations. So uh, to summarize for your excellent question, 
there's a mixed bag. Some insurance companies understand the need to do things differently and realize that delays in care actually end up costing them money and they're changing policies from a pragmatic standpoint. Others are lagging in that work, um, but we're continuing to make compelling cases. And um, to, to your point, there are very uh, significant programs now, some near us where um, they have more than an eight year history of providing integrated healthcare in ways that are not only clinically successful, which is the ultimate measure of success, but also fiscally sustainable because they were able to work with insurance companies to change payment policies. Dr. Santos, this one is for you. Um, do any of the services in play or uh, in place or plan focus on dialectical behavior therapy? I'm not sure what dialectical we can hear as a way to address coping and the PTSD and the pandemic experience. Yeah, I think um, all of our psychologists across our ambulatory clinics use a variety of different strategies to be able to do it. Do we have a plan to roll out an entire DBT program? No, but I would say that all of our clinicians use those skills when appropriate in their uh, sessions. Comment on, on DBT, what it just shortly what it what it entails. Oh, so dialectical behavior therapy is just a type of therapy that's been shown to be very effective for trauma and getting over uh, trauma therapy. Okay, uh, Dr. Downs, uh, common question for you. So, the, with the coming coming pandemic, uh, what are the major things that pediatricians should be looking for? Sort of, uh, you know, major disorders that they could be, they will be seeing, could be seeing, in your opinion. So, I think that. As Dr. Santos was showing in some of her slides, we're seeing some upticks in depression and anxiety. Um, another thing we're seeing a lot more of is eating disorder. I think, you know, every week there's a new patient who's admitted to the medical services here at the hospital with a very similar story of, you know, in March when the pandemic started, my life felt very out of control. I grabbed onto something I could control, which was my eating. Um, it made me happy to see that I was losing weight and then things just went too far. And now here I am, everyone's worried about me. So that's definitely something we're seeing, um, not only at our hospital, but across the nation that there's been an uptick in eating disorders already, especially restrictive eating disorder. We're also seeing upticks in anxiety and depression. And we're seeing kids who previously were very high functioning doing really well, did not have these as concerns, um, who are really starting to have mental health illness that they had not previously shown. And so I think that's really important. Again, it's just remembering that you need to ask everybody because um, this is really coming at us from all fronts. And there's a lot of kids out there that have not dealt well with this pandemic and are gonna need our support. Thank you. Um, Howard, this, this is a comment from Ken Spiegelman and also I guess the part of a question. Uh, Ken says, very important to emphasize the, the importance of all pediatric providers giving out not a 211 EMPS to all families who can call for mental health needs at the outset. They can also come to ones <clears throat> to the office for evaluation or a short ER visit. Also, telemedicine is very much geared towards addressing mental health concerns of families given time needed, as is done by the majority of therapists at the present time. So can you comment on 211 services and telemedicine services? Sure. The, the, the state many years ago recognizing the need for families to access and for providers to access immediate care uh, set up the uh, 211 number uh, where they have uh, trained uh, folks on the phones, manning the folks, the phones, and have direct connections to the state's emergency psychiatric services. So uh, if you have a child in your office and you've uh, screened them and you're concerned that they might be experiencing a mental health crisis, uh, you can call 211 and they can then uh, notify the local uh, EMPS provider, which is the Emergency um, uh, Psychiatric Service for Children, who will then dispatch a team 
to the child's home or your office and do an on-site assessment and can then determine whether the child needs further assessment in an emergency room. So that's something you can do right now. It's immediately available uh, pending the uh, establishment of our urgent care model, which we're doing in, in collaboration with the state. Um, there are multiple mental health providers in each of your communities. And I would suggest that if you haven't already to, to uh, identify them and reach out to them. But as Glenn uh, did say that we are available uh, should you have a challenging um, situation uh, to help you identify a local provider or in ways that we can address the child's needs at Connecticut Children's. I'm going to put two questions together, and Glenn, this will be for you um, from, uh, from, from Dr. Scherzer, our, a pediatrician. I think we need to be realistic. It is not possible to turn through exams that we're going to look at behavioral health screenings and give families a chance to talk about anxiety and mood. The frequency of positive screens in our practice approaches 20%. Fortunately, we have resources in our office, and we do. We have an embedded psychologist in our pediatric offices. It takes time. What efforts are being made to help payers realize that this is a new way of doing preventative health so that pediatricians can be paid for the increased investment of time needed to evaluate those children. Similar questions, how do we get paid for these screenings? So it's sort of a combined question of embedding psychologists within a practice. What can we tell our pediatricians? So Dr. Scherzer, I love that question and the, the follow on to it. So you're right. Uh, I honestly believe that um, um, one of the gifts of COVID is that we've been unencumbered from some of the visits that typically uh, made up a very significant portion of visits in primary care pediatrics. I've seen it firsthand from my wife's practice as well as from my supportive primary care East and West. I think our templates will look different um, uh, moving forward. I think we'll see less uh, sort of squeezed in quick visits for rashes and low level uh, viral infections and more uh, extended uh, visits where you'll be able to bill for higher levels of um, time and intensity and decision-making. So you'll be able to choose CPT codes that will reflect the uh, complexity and time spent with a creating an environment and a clinical environment where children and families can talk about the issues they're facing with anxiety and depression and other behavioral health disorders. Now that doesn't mean that I think that uh, um, primary care pediatricians uh, need to start acting like psychiatrists. We still need to build an ecosystem where highly trained professionals can be our partners. And, and as you know, in primary care East and West, we have an integrated model where we have access to behavioral health care coordination, as well as two very skilled mm -hmm. doctoral level psychologists who have a focus and passion on integrating uh, their care within a medical setting, our primary care clinics. So I have discussions every uh, month with uh, insurers across the state and the region about the need to make certain that we can receive payment for these services, their uh, importance to managing uh, the behavioral health care of children in addition to the medical health care. We know that children with chronic illnesses that are not well controlled are much more likely to have a concomitant behavioral health issue. And this work is all, uh, all tied together. So, I want to affirm that I believe the template of the primary care pediatrician will continue to evolve towards a smaller number of visits, but visits that are longer and more complicated and can be built at higher levels based on time and complexity. And we need to have 
as I said earlier, an ecosystem in those practices where people who have training and know what dialectical behavioral therapies are and what the appropriate treatment therapies are for kids um, based on age and developmental status and illness we're treating can receive those evidence-based treatments. Because the, the thing I don't want us to forget in the midst of this pandemic is these treatments work. They save lives. They're directly um, responsive to the fact that uh, suicide has become the second leading cause of death in people 10 to 34 in the state of Connecticut. And, and these efforts continue to really try to tear down the historic disconnects between the behavioral health and physical health of children. So um, thanks for such a thoughtful and informed um, answer. Question. Dr. Downs, so we, we we're kind of winding, and we still have a lot of questions. I mean, obviously, this could be an hour of a question and answer. But uh, uh, Jennifer, the the question is specifically about dealing with the parents' own anxiety and mental illness. What are the resources for a parent? We're dealing with a child, but what about the parent? Yeah. So I think that that's that's a harder question for a lot of us, right? Because we are pediatric providers and, and we're used to taking care of the kids. Um, it is really important to ask, and I'm glad you're thinking about the parents and asking about the parents, because um, when the parents are unhealthy, then they have a hard time caring for the children and the children suffer more consequences of that. Um, I will say that embedded in all of our communities, our community mental health centers and those service all ages of patients, both children and adults, and that is a federally mandated care network. Um, so that is one place to look. The website I mentioned previously, Psychology Today, also has um, adult services. And I think also seeking out care coordination. So I know on my slide set, I showed you the Access Mental Health number. They have care coordination available. Connecticut Children's has care coordination available and they can help connect parents to resources as well, not just the children. Um, the first step though is, is you acknowledging that the parents are also in distress and joining with them and being that empathetic voice. Um, to let them express their concerns. Uh, sure, you have uh, 30 seconds. <laughs> Two other quick things. So the reality is in integrated settings, 50% of the time we're treating the parent, not the child. And there are CPT codes that allow us to provide brief um, therapy interventions for parents where we can bill for sessions without the child present. And those are often directly addressing the mental health needs of the parent. They're not appropriate for parents who need more extensive care, but they can be a bridge to that needed care. Okay, thank you. Um, uh, Dr. Santos, I'm gonna ask you to close the session uh, with final comments and, uh, and thanking everyone here. So I wanna thank everyone for attending uh, today's Grand Rounds. Obviously, this is a topic that's really passionate for all of us. I think if you have any questions um, about any of the care that your uh, patients are receiving or you have any kind of mental health questions, I think uh, without hesitation, you can reach out to any of us that spoke here today. Feel free to reach out to me, Dr. Downs, Dr. Folk, or Howard, um, and we'd be more than happy to help guide you in your next steps with your uh, patients. Um, and we thank you as always for your attention to behavioral health. Thank you to all of you for an outstanding presentations. We'll provide information on how to sign up for the behavioral health training session that has been offered through Boston Children's. And I challenge all of you that next year will be offered through Connecticut Children's and not the Boston Children's model, which we like them, but we're better. Um, and so thank you again. We'll see you on Friday for the uh, our typical Ask the Expert session. Uh, I think this year, this time we have Dr. Shriver and we have Dr. Mel Collins from Pulmonary Medicine. Thank you again. Be safe. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.